Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. There is a place where time stands still. Where nature is harsh and demanding. Where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. I my Good morning, this is Annie for Showreel, our look at Australian film on 3CR 855 on your AM dial and of course podcasts. Uh, today, we're going to have a look at a, a documentary made by Rosie Jones. It's uh, about uh, the family. It's called The Family. And uh, anybody uh, who was alive in the 70s will probably be aware of the uh, the storm around the uh, family. It was uh, run, it, it's, it seemed to be a cult by many. Anne Hamilton Byrne, she was a beautiful, in fact she spent a lot of time cultivating her beauteousness, charismatic and delusional. She uh, had in, was an incredibly dangerous person because she was able to convince many people to do her bidding. And uh, the elements that are particularly disturbing about Anne Hamilton Byrne's reign as the centrepiece of the family was the collection of children that she brought together as uh, reflections of her uh, view of the world. Anyway, the uh, film The Family is an incredibly well-documented, collected uh, details discussions with different people, interviews with uh, people who were children at the Ilden farm that uh, the family ran. Anyway, if you've got any interest in uh, real history, uh, this is a, a, an interesting, incredibly interesting film to see. Uh, it's very interesting from the point of view of collected uh, collecting details for a filmic work and also if you're interested in cults as Rosie Jones who has subsequently written a book which is published by Scribe has told me she started to investigate it mainly because she was interested in why people involve themselves in belief structures like the family, and people's spirituality in general. So let's hear what uh, Rosie had to say about her adventure into the family. Okay, let's start with uh, why you decided to write uh, a book about the family. Right. Well, actually, uh, I decided to do the film first. Oh, did you? Interesting. Yes, yes. The film came first. Oh, Um, right. So... Yes, yes, I know it's a bit unusual, not the not the normal way things are done. But I um, 
I was researching for another film and I came across a woman who had been a member of the family and she was living in a, a pretty difficult circumstances and she started to tell me all about this story that I hadn't gone there to research but, but which was incredibly disturbing and fascinating and she told me about being carted off to a psychiatric hospital, being given um, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, and also LSD, and how she got involved with this very glamorous blonde yoga teacher, Anne Hamilton Byrne. And, you know, it brought back a whole lot of images for me of the police raid that happened on the Sex Lake Eildon property back in 1987 with the yeah. blonde children and their pudding bowl haircuts and all of that. And I'm interested in... Um, faith and religion and spirituality and how all of those intersect with, you know, ordinary lives. Because I'm, I'm not a religious person, but I just, I think it's fundamental to the way we all operate. So it was a, a, a story that sort of pushed buttons for me. And then I, I sort of started delving into it and it just got continually more fascinating and horrifying and just you know, extraordinary. So I kept researching it. Did you so have any book, did you have any memory of that besides those news reports? Did you have any did it pattern through your ch- childhood that those news reports? No, actually I'm from New Zealand. Ah, that's right. So and, I do remember. Fact, it. Ah, radio. Well, I I arrived in Melbourne in 1985 to do a a, a filmmaking course to learn about filmmaking and at the VCA. And so when I, you know, of course, when you come out of a filmmaking course, you're looking for ideas. And I remember at the time when the raid happened that I was absolutely fascinated, but not in a position to do anything about it. So it took me a while to get back to that story. But it's so much part of what I've been doing, sort of so fits into the body of work that I have. So that, so let's go back know. to the making of the film because I actually thought mm-hmm. that uh, my approach had been that uh, to ask you how you adapted a book to a film but actually it's the mm-hmm. other way around. How did you, uh, what did you decide to do? You did a vast amount of research because it's beautifully researched. Well, we, I mean, I, I guess in a way the book came about because of all the research and because we have so much more information and as we keep screening the film we're getting more and more information. So, you know, we knew from the outset that this story was way too big for a feature film, really, a feature documentary. You know, it's such a complex sect and the things that we wanted to explore that came out of the sect and, and the damage that was done to people, they're so complex. And even the setting up of the sect and the the um, environment surrounding it, there's just so much. It's so rich that, you know, I guess in a way we thought the film would be something that would provoke discussion, which it is proving to have done. Um, it's the tip of an iceberg. And so it seemed a terrible shame for all that research to go to waste. And that's when... Or actually, the idea of the book came up simultaneously with the film because the detective Lex Deman was really, in fact, more interested in a book than a film. So um, it's sort of something that's been fermenting since the film began. But um, I got in contact with Chris Johnston, or we got in contact with each other. He had been doing some stories in The Age, and um, it became a bit more concrete. So this is a so live, real story. I mean, it's a live, real story 
that happened to real people. And uh, many mm-hmm. of these people are still alive and still trying to process what actually happened. How did uh, you build your film around these people's recollections? Um, well, I could I could talk first of all, first of all about getting in contact with them, which was you know, an extremely slow process. The the whole, the research for the book's taken four years, for the film and book has taken four years. Um, some of it was done through Lex Demand. So I approached him, who, who is the detective who investigated, or one of the detectives who investigated the sect. I approached him, approached him first and to try to gain his confidence. And it took me probably 18 months, I felt, to get Lex fully on board the project because... You know, it was a very important story to him and he wanted to be ma- wanted to make sure that it was in the hands of the right people. So, you know, he really vetted us. <laughs> he put us through the third degree. But then once we'd sort of jumped that hurdle, he put us into contact with a few people and they gradually put us in, into contact with others. So it was a very slow process. And in a way, I worked from the outside out. I didn't want to go to... Some of the children, for example, who'd been at Lake Eildon, who weren't speaking about any of it publicly, I didn't want to go there before I knew we actually had a film. Because oh, tell me what you mean you know, by that. Tell me what you mean by well, that. I, I mean that it's very traumatic asking people to dredge up memories that are very difficult and painful, and I didn't think it was worth doing that until I knew that we had financing and that what I was talking about with them was real. So I didn't want to go and spend two or three hours talking over something that was grueling and distressing and then find that really it was just a research interview. If yeah. You under- it, yeah, I do understand. It's such tough stuff and, you know, it takes a lot for people to go back there because some people have chosen to deal with the past by simply closing the door. So any opening of that door is very, very difficult. Um, other people talk about it more freely, but nevertheless, it's a triggering thing to be talking about it. So, you know, we wanted to be very, very careful. That's Anna Grieve, who was the producer and has been fantastic um, with me, keeping everybody on board and keeping everybody happy. Um, we just didn't want to raise this kind of stuff without knowing that we had a film in hand, you know, that we could actually make it. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. The there's something. Yeah. Uh, the thing also is that I, what I noticed when I was watching the film because it was beautifully put together and very well researched, and was about something that I had had actually uh, stored away in my filing system as something I wanted to understand because I was quite young. Right, I was a kid when these things popped uh-huh. up at different stages. Yes. And um, I wondered about what it meant because we lived in a world of the mainstream uh, enforced almost autocratic arrangements in our society. And here were these people who seemed to be living a life that they dictated themselves, but then the state was attacking them. And that was the, the story they liked to uh, put forward, wasn't it? But the children yes. were actually being quite brutally... Absolutely. Um, I, I think they were living a life on the surface that was very, well, relatively normal in that 
this wasn't a group of people who lived like a hippie commune. They all lived in separate houses, albeit congregating in various streets in Fernie Creek. Um, and they went out into the world. The motto was unseen, unheard, unknown. Mm. And That's a bit they, spooky, isn't it? It is spooky, but the idea was that they would go out and lead their daily lives and in a way proselytise in that way. Uh, they, weren't, they, they weren't people who, you know, would preach on the corner of a street or anything. It wasn't like that. It was much more subtle and Anne, in a way, handpicked the people that were in her group because she wanted them to be well-educated. She wanted them to be um, useful to her, primarily very, very useful, as in people who either had money or power or positions of authority, for example, in hospitals, that would be very useful for her aims. So she had a certain number of strategies that she used um, to operate that were very, uh, I guess, subtle and under the surface. What, why, what, what role did the children really play in her fantasy? I mean, it does go into this a lot because ultimately mm. the legal system... Uh, obviously things had happened, you know, different people were clearly abused, but the legal system really had very little uh, le uh, uh, leverage. It was a very slippery fish and they were only undone by a very, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, Al Capone and the tax laws, you know, <laughs> in America. Yes, that's right. Yes, I, I think the reason the detectives chose to go after document fraud was because you can't slip out of that. There's no sort of, there's no subtlety in a document. You either you've signed it or you haven't signed it, really. Um, so that was why that they went for something that was literally black and white, rather than all the other things, which, as you say, were very slippery. And I think um, Anne had these very prominent people because in the sect and as, as her sort of leaders and core group because at that time in society, people didn't very much question doctors. They didn't question lawyers. They didn't really... There was more trust for, for figures of authority. And so I think the mere fact that it was respectable, that it had Dr. Rainer Johnson, who was an eminent physicist, um, you know, highly regarded in society in general... He was her co-founder, and so it meant that there was a real veneer of respectability that people didn't question for a very long time. And, you know, that meant that they were able to get away with very dodgy paperwork. The, the sect lawyer, um, you know, was happily forging signatures, and as were most of her, her main um, henchmen and women. They were all very respectable people who were happy to sign documents that were totally false or forge signatures or all because of her charisma, her power and what she held over them. So, you know, I think in, for example, with children were literally stolen from public hospitals and they were able to do that because they had doctors who would, who would deliver the baby. They had nurses and social workers within the hospital system who were sect members and they could persuade young women who had had a child out of wedlock to hand that baby over. And so literally a baby was born, was picked up by the nurses and doctors and, and 
given to a cult member inside the hospital who would then give the, the baby straight to Anne. Tune in to On Screen and find out more about what's on the big and the small screen each Saturday, 11am till 12 noon on 3CR. It's a program on film, on filmmakers and on film festivals. It's called On Screen, Mm, but it's on the radio, 3CR. My name's Molly Reynolds and I make documentaries like Another Country and I support 3CR because it is a radio station that once you start listening to, you can't stop. You're on Showreel with Annie on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. We also podcast so you can get us again if you want to hear this interview again. You can go to the 3CR website and go to our list of podcasts and showreel is amongst them. Today we're talking to Rosie Jones who wrote and directed a film about the family which is a group of people around a sect that was prominent in Melbourne from the 1960s through to the 1990s. We'll continue with our conversation with Rosie Jones. Given the level of uh, uh, amount of uh, American uh, law and order type programs that flood our our psyches basically these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things about your film, The Family, is that a very unnerving fact is that this is real. This really yes. happened. Have you had yes. responses from people that find it difficult to actually accept and acknowledge their complicity? Um. Well, I guess you would say that Michael Stevenson Helmer, who agreed to be interviewed for the film and book, he he is one of those people. He, um, along with most of Anne's inner circle of cult members, believes that the children that Anne rescued, kindly rescued from the hospital system, were all faulty children. As in, you know, the story was told to members of the cult that these children had brain damage or that one, one, actually, Ben Shenton, who is in the film and is very healthy, very intellectually bright, perfectly normal person, um, the story went around that he had a club foot and that's why Anne had had (laughs) taken him on kindly. And his own family were told that he had had a club foot and he'd been sent out somewhere because of because of this, you know, and that they wouldn't want him and that he'd, he'd gone. So she would put around these rumours. There were others who had, you know, some strange head that was crooked or you, there would be some invented, um, what would you call it, imperfection in the child, which meant that she had rescued them because nobody else wanted these children. I think they were described as cabbages by oh, one. Yeah, that's member. right. Yes, um, but clearly, you know, when you see them in the documentary, these so-called cabbages, it's so ridiculous that, you know, this. but this was what she told people. And, you know, if she is your messiah, if she is your figure of 
that, that completely controls your life, then you go along with that. No, so it's quite that's that was an, the narrative. Yeah, that was the narrative. Which you, let, let's mm-hmm. go to the narrative. It's quite interesting. It's like a perverted uh, Jesus Christ, uh, a Madonna arrangement. She's a fusion mm-hmm. of uh, Jesus Christ and Madonna, and like a Trinity, really, and God the Father, yes. I presume. <laughs> well, she'd like to see it like that, I'm sure. Yeah, yes. which is really interesting. But the most interesting element to it was that uh, she was able to convince other people by tapping into some element within themselves. So we were seeing yes. men who were overawed by her sexual allure, apparently. Uh, the men then uh, bullied their their partners. Uh, the women were undermined in terms of their self-confidence uh, and their self-belief. Quite fascinating. Yes. Yes, it is true. Uh, but I also think she was a sort of combination of sex goddess, which I think was not fulfilled. Yeah. I, I, I don't think that I know, there was, and there was know, no sex that in, was handed out. No, I don't think no, sex no, was involved. Not, well, the reason why it worked was because it was withheld. That's right. Certainly not with her, but I think she was also a combination sexual figure and mother. So for many of the men and women in the sect... The thing that she found that made them vulnerable was the fact that they didn't have a mother of their own who loved them enough. So they were going to her because she seemed to provide that love. At first, she was a very kind and loving person, apparently. So many people have said that, that she would, at a time when they were really vulnerable, she would offer them a lot of support, a lot of love, a lot of positive feedback, and that would make them feel comfortable, they would feel indebted to her. She would genuinely help them at the beginning. She would make them feel good about themselves. But then they were in her grips because yeah, she'd she done this for them. Basically. This is the deal. Well, I think so. I think, you know, she could certainly get people in, but she didn't really care about them. And I think it was the same with the children. Once she had the children, they were there and they, they, could, they had no control over their own lives, but... She didn't actually love them. She spent very, very, very little time with those children. Yeah, so, very strange stuff. I, I, yeah. it, it is very strange. And I, I think it's interesting that, you know, she is one of very few female cult leaders. But you can see, uh, you know, with, with cult leaders who are masculine, who are male, people are looking for a father figure. So I guess it's, it's, it's just the unusual occurrence of that transferred to a, a woman. Yeah, she she was so focused on her own her own mm. needs basically. So in the end, her yeah. tally is that she's got expensive ha- uh, land, uh, uh, real estate in the places where she wants to live, and <laughs> all mm. paid for yes, by other people. Right. Yeah. Yes, but but apparently given out of love and respect and admiration. So you know that that's. It, it's such an interesting. She, she, she was a very. Well, she's still alive. She is a very intelligent woman and very strategic. And I think, as some people have said, I do believe that she was very perceptive in terms of. She, she was very insightful into people's personalities. I think she had a. She did have a gift. 
for well, being able to right. see what it was that people needed. And she cut a swathe in uh, in uh, the lives of many of these people, which is why it's a, a right. very interesting uh, inspection that you've done into this story, into this film. I mean, fascinating, absolutely fascinating piece of work that you've put together. One of the oh, other elements you. that have come up in this film, of course, is not just that she had uh, a lot of uh, uh, influential friends. She wanted influential people with money and power. This meant, of course, that her influence subverted the uh, the structures, which with societal structures, which is uh, in Australia, the, it corrupted uh, certain elements that people rely on for justice and uh, and uh, their well being. Has well, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you, sorry, do you want to keep going? Or? Yeah, no, I, sorry. I, go, you, you answer. You talk to me. Okay. Oh, um, well, yes, she certainly within her sect had um, several doctors and psychiatrists who were instrumental in dosing children with LSD. Now, it, it wasn't illegal at the time. Um, nobody had really imagined that children might be given LSD and LSD itself was very new. So she was at the, the forefront of all of that. Um, so you wouldn't really expect psychiatrists to be giving LSD to their own children, but they did. They did because, you know, in the words of um, Huxley, opening the doors of perception, I think in some weird way they must have thought that that would also do the same thing for their children, which I, I find extraordinary. It, it was a, um, a standard sect ritual that at the age of 14 they would do what they called go through which was to give the kids LSD and leave them alone in a dark room um, for sometimes days at a time with repeated doses of LSD. Now you know it's pretty astounding. It's pretty astounding from our perspective now given all the restrictions and regulations we have in place but even astounding in that day when things were pretty unregulated. So you wouldn't expect doctors and nurses to be uh, involved in that. You wouldn't expect nurses to be punishing children with, I mean, shocking things like holding their hands over a flame until for, for several minutes with all the other children watching. And I think one of the children that had that done to him has permanent damage in a, in a finger because of that. That's not what nurses do. You know, so yes, the whole idea of caring was subverted with this group yes and also legally um you know these were lawyers were signing false documents and creating false documents and yes it was it was really bizarre and shocking so now that you've done this film and people are watching it what has been the most dominant response because it's quite extraordinary film uh, oh, thank you. Um, the dominant res response is, is, is shock. How could this have happened amongst us? Why, why was nothing done? At the, or why did it take so long for anything to happen? And then the next step from that we're finding in Q&As is that people say, well, what can we do? What can we do now about this? So, you know, it goes through a sort of process of, oh, I'm shocked. Um, how could that have happened? How could these people who seem like decent, normal people do this and then 
now? What can we do as a result of that? And um, I guess what we're saying is that we want the film to open up all these questions. We would like to... Um, well, we hope that when Anne dies, that the uh, estate that she has, and we believe it must be around, it's between five and ten million that that is in her, her estate. We would like to see that divided amongst people who really need some help because a lot of the people who were in the cult, not just the children up at Lake Eildon, but many of the children of families in the cult and adult cult members themselves are really suffering as a result of their um, brush or, or, or long-term association with the group. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are hurting and could do with some help. So that's what we'd like to see. We think that would be a bit of justice for those who are involved and who have been very hurt. Thanks very much for talking to me, Rosie. Thank you. That's it for Showreel today. Uh, Coming up next is Published or Not. If you're interested in the book, The Family, by Chris Johnson and Rosie Jones, it's published by Scribe. You can get it from bookshops and uh, it costs $32.99. Of course, it's also, the film uh, has got a release at Nova. Very interesting film. We'll go out with Movie Star. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.